Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of The Suspense is Killing Me. I'm Lucas Marino, as always, and today with me, I have the one and only Miss Rose Bacon. All the clapping. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. All the way from the UK. You're in London. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so you're the second UK guest because we had, as you and I were speaking before the show, we had Antonia Rachel Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, who you worked with on yes. the Belladonna Invitation. We'll talk about that a little bit. Um, but yeah, so grateful that you're here. Um, so happy to have you. And so excited to talk about this story because it's such a great book. It's so beautifully written. I really enjoy all of the um, the flavor of this book. It's got a It's got a great feel to it. So... I can nerd out about that in just a little bit. So tell us a little bit about where you're at. What's going on in London? Like, what do you do? What do you do all day? <laughs> um, it is a beautiful um, mid-October heat wave here in Hackney in East London. So it's very, very nice. Mm. Um, I, what do I do all day? Um, I'm a freelance artist. Um, so I work um, across, it's a lovely mix at its best. So I, I work across um, writing, I, I write, write fiction. I do some performance. I write for theater. Um, perform myself as well. Um, so I do a bit of um, theatre theatre work, sometimes in immersive and interactive shows sometimes, sometimes uh, work that I've made that can sometimes be a bit more of a sort of a live art, mm. experimental um, mode. Um, and I do a bit of dance as well. Um, I also do some teaching every now and again with a creative writing department at a university here in London. I love it. I love it. That's got to be such a blast teaching that. Like, I teach in an engineering department at a university, but I don't, I don't get to be as creative as like a creative writing class. So, <laughs> I'd imagine that would be a whole lot more fun than I teach project management and systems engineering. <laughs> so, although my students get pretty creative with some of their projects, I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> but I, I think project management does encompass a lot of what day-to-day -day it oh, takes yeah. to kind of make some of those things exist especially the the theatrical side you know the funding bids and grant applications and working yep. with venues and all that sort of business you know all, yep. all the admin all the stuff mm. the stuff that helps the art come forward yes the, the admin you have to do to get the creative bit to that's right exist, yeah. <laughs> so that's super that's that it it was uh so nice to hear that you have all of this art in your life, it's, it's more than just, um, it's more than just like a, a, a single expression or application of art in your life. You, you, mm -hmm. you carry your art through different means, different ways. Um, most of the people I interview on the show, they have a little bit of that in their lives. Um, but some people are less, uh, willing to share some of those other arts publicly and you do that for a living. So I think it's really cool um, that you're, that, that you've chosen this life and that you're doing these things that is so great. Um, and it's so, uh, it's so pretty and you can feel it in, you can feel that artistic expression that you have in other areas of your life in, in your writing. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think art and artists can be a, a theme is, is sometimes a subject matter that I kind of return to, but I, I hope it's more diffuse than that. Like very interested in, you know, working across different art forms, very interested in collaboration and very interested in cross-disciplinary stuff. And so different forms, different styles, like we were talking a bit about writing style and voice and mm -hmm. things like that. Like, you know, I'd, I'd really enjoy 
playing with and pushing pushing with these these elements yeah yeah no it's great i mean when i was talking to antonia rachel ward um we were and i'll refer to her as antonia for the rest of the episode if i talk about her this way i don't sound like some nerd who's gonna like <laughs> just do the full run every time so when i was last interviewing antonia we were speaking about how she had certain themes that carried through her work and one of which was performers she, I was like, Hey, you know, what kind of themes do you kind of consistently see come through your work? And she's like, I'm always writing about performers. Well, as a performer, I've, you know, I can feel your performance come through in your writing because I think it changes the way you structure your story. You're performing as a writer in a way mm -hmm. that maybe some writers who don't perform in other mediums, uh, may, may not consider. Um, and it may be a natural thing for you, or it might actually be a planned thing. Um, but I could, I could sense that um, in your writing, especially in the opening part of the Belladonna Invitation, because you open the book in a play, in an opera house, mm. you know. So you guys have that in common. Maybe you and uh, next time you and Antonia hang out and have some tea or something, you guys can nerd out about <laughs> about that element of your book. It's really cool. Um, okay, so all of these arts, which one, which one did you start first? Did you have you always been into art? Were you heavily into art as a child? I, I think I've always loved the combination of like English and drama, English and theatre. I think I've always enjoyed, mm. I've studied that, I've continued to study and work with that. And I think those two forms and those two forms interrelating and the relationship between, I, I can't remember a time I didn't love that. And I think even at school, if we were told we were going to be writing a story soon, I'd be so excited to be I couldn't wait to do that. Like I think that's always been something that um, I enjoyed and, and and love to do. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. So you did you start with writing at a young age? Like what what was your first chosen love art? I think um, well, I did always sort of love writing stories in that way, in that kind of way that that writers often talk about loving writing stories as a child. I certainly did that. I then really enjoyed performing, and I think I went through university. Uh, mainly wanting to be an actor and I sort of that was my main uh thing and then a little later in studying when I was sort of doing my PhD which was in drama looking at um immersive performances theatre company Punch Drunk I don't know if you've come across them they do mm. you know, I was writing about immersive and interactive performance and uh I needed to be doing something else while researching that in the day and then I need to be having my own creative outlet and, and output and that, that was the point where I sort of I remember really going back to fiction, but really paying attention to like which words, what order the words are in and what order the paragraphs are in, and really trying to think about it seriously in a way that I don't think I had before that point when I was writing stories and plays and things, and it was loads of fun and I enjoyed it. But I think I can remember the, the point I started taking it seriously, as it were, as a thing I was doing and making. And that was probably probably about 10 years ago as to, to, oh. to, not, to not be doing my PhD, I would be, I would be doing the writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my gosh that was and around around the end of that time uh yeah in 2014 it would be um because mm -hmm. i remember um i got my first sort of short fiction uh, story published in an anthology by the sadly now no longer operating uh jurassic london who are fantastic and wonderful to work with and i, I wish i still was and i'm sure many many people do um but they were great and that was an amazing opportunity and that sort of got me into i wasn't really aware what i was doing was one genre or another but from landing that kind of um book and that project and being part of that kind of put me in a 
a sort of genre-y, historically voiced, all those things kind of have been sort of playing with that ever since. You've, you've written quite a bit of short fiction. I mean, I'm looking it, at your website. It's added up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that all started for you around 2014? Well, I remember that was the first um, anthology called Irregularity published by Jurassic, which was my first kind of sh short fiction um, mm. publication. Um, and I remember I really wanted to, I really wanted to get that because I, I saw, I learned about it and it was published um, in sort of collaboration with the National Maritime Museum. And it was to mm. commemorate the um, anniversary of the Longitude Act. Um, of course, as a former sailor on big ships, you will know all about. Oh, all yeah. about this. So that was a collection that was all ab about exploring scientific failure, you know, and ships and maps and clocks sure. and things like that and i love that stuff so i thought i, I really would love to be a part of this project and i was delighted to, that i got to be um so my short story from that is um going to be republished in a my first short fiction collections coming out next year which will be this is how i can remember it's 2014 because next year it will be 10 years from my first oh wow first piece and so this is going to be a collection of sort of my best and or favorite stories from that time really most of which are out of print now um mm. and the the irregularity one will will be in there oh so you have all those rights back now <laughs> yes you can just have a blast with that very good <laughs> oh the fun the fun <laughs> that you're gonna have now oh my gosh i, I feel like uh the you know I was talking with like red lego about this uh she had she had uh reacquired many of her rights from some of her shorter publications and she put out a collection this year actually mm. this month um and this is so cool you'll appreciate this it's called impulses of a necrotic heart and she does all her own yeah she does all her own illustrations and everything yeah the colors are lovely She's but really some nice. of these are are stories that she had regained rights to and mm. then she obviously wrote a bunch of new short stories to put in the collection together it's fantastic. So I get excited for you when I hear about you getting those back because then you have the opportunity to republish them. It's pretty cool. Um, and then you also you also wrote Wild Time. Can you tell me a little bit about Wild Time? Because this was before the Belladonna Invitation, correct? Yes, yes. This is my previous novel. Um, Wild Time is a sort of punk uh, revision of Shakespeare's um, A Midsummer Night's Dream, which I co-wrote with my art and life collaborator, Keir Cooper, who's also an interdisciplinary uh, writer and theatre maker and musician um, and we it was initially going to be I wanted to write a novel about Titania and I was talking to him about it and we immediately became more interested in a book that wasn't only about Titania but was sort of um, why only change Titania why why can't we change everything and so mm -hmm. we sort of did a big um, it, it's a it's a book that is the best feedback I ever had from it from a reader was someone who said it's a little bit like remembering the best production of Dream you ever saw or were in. And everything's oh, completely cool. different. Everything's completely different, but somehow the spirit of it, sort of, it's true as well. So it, in one way, it's kind of a sort of a feminist deconstruction of, of pleasure, power, gender dynamics, what's going on in that. But also we tried to cram it full of as many things that made us laugh and we thought were fun and interesting. So, for example, the the four lovers in, in dream there's four kind of teenage lovers who get cross-purposed and we weren't that interested in creating more teenage bickering so we transposed the lovers into uh celestial bodies that have a kind oh. of 
intergalactic sort of orgy in a way gotcha. because they're they're responding to the um dynamics of the the fairies down on the ground so in 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 dream there's a moment where the fairies are having an argument well they begin by having an argument and titania talks about it's quite a famous text which is often taken to be sort of about climate change now where she sort of describes we are we are their parents and original we are the, the reason that we're arguing and therefore it's flooded and there's terrible strife and the, da, 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 the weather and so on so we thought well if we flip that when the fairies are having a great time then presumably sort of the world sort of takes on some of that sort of even stuff so we expanded that up into up into space um and managed to just about create a kind of yeah a sort of poetic space mm. opera that's sort of tucked into the main novel which is this sort of we hope funny we hope we hope punk we hope energetic sort of dream but not like you know it it sounds so like so much fun <laughs> and i love your cover uh it yeah, you guys have like the crayon scribbling yeah. out a Midsummer Night's Dream and then it says wild time and crayon and then your names. I love that. Uh, it's so much fun, which really kind of pulls that thread on that, you know, like there, there's no hiding the, the punk flavor behind this, like it literally yeah. starts on the cover. Um, and I like your description on your website it says it's a punk revision of Shakespeare's narratives of pleasure and power. Wild time is a new world composed of erotic and theatrical acrobatics taking liberties with greek gods and literary idols like nothing is sacred awesome <laughs> the, the play starts with um we're told that we're in ancient athens and theseus the duke of athens is getting married to hippolyta the queen of the amazons and that's sort of the frame that is the wedding that we're at that, and um that's the wedding that's celebrated at the end of the play and most of the time a production doesn't really need to and often won't sort of emphasize that too much because that's really the frame device we spend most of our time in the woods and they're very english woods um so we thought it would be funny to like run as far as we could with that provocation of that setting so we thought well we know that the gods and the fairies and the heroes are all invited to this wedding because theseus and sorry um oberon and titania bicker about who's coming and accusing each other of having affairs with these various heroes like well they're all there so this just sounds like the wedding of the absolute what an incredible wedding like let's let's see that and let's see all the amazons going on a hendu because why wouldn't they and let's see theseus and oberon having a drunk whiskey filled stag do in a private club somewhere. and it's again it's all sort of extrapolating from the tiniest clue in the text and and, and seeing what what would make us laugh so this is one of those books you could read it several times and you're probably gonna have a different experience every time because you could just pull from those new things that you're discovering at every read Oh, I love that. I hope so. There's there's a lot. We crammed it with a lot of things. We tried to. Oh, I love that. Um, you know, that's that's one of the beauties of of intentionally building a story that you can embed sort of those little nuggets throughout because people most likely aren't going to pick all of them up on the first pass, you know, which is really like it kind of makes a and you talk to some people and they're like, oh, I, I never reread a story twice or I never watch a movie more than once. You know, it's like mm. one of those things. But like, I love when you have a book or a story that must be mm. reviewed um, because it just shows the amount of depth that's built into every every page. Love that. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, now, in that description I read to you, it, it noted erotic and theatrical acrobatics. Mm. This is part of your life art, right? This is what you, you, you have some of this. This isn't just something that you whipped up for a book, right? This is part of your <laughs> expression on a normal, normal basis. 
Uh, yes, I do. I do performance and I, I do some dance. Specifically, I've um, been training and practicing and performing pole dance for quite a number of years now. And um, I started doing that because I thought it was fun and a bit different and I enjoyed it a lot. And then I became much more interested in, um, well, I've used it in various ways across my art practice and as a sort of gigging, jobbing performer. And it's very interesting to track the um, the, the history of that of that art form and how you can put it to use in interesting ways that don't mm. throw under the bus its originators. Uh, when I first started doing it, this was many, many years ago, competitions could be a little bit, um, there was a sort of respectability politics issue. Like you couldn't mm. really do choreography that looked a bit like stripping. They tried to get away from that. And at the moment, I think, um, competitions and performance have become increasingly comfortable with knowing the importance of being allied to and vocally an allegiance of the origins of the form. Mm. So in a way, my, my journey through that dance form was sort of I came in at the point where it was trying to establish itself by saying, well, we're not that. It's it's that, mm. but not that. It's not like that. And so that was an interesting time to, to come into it and to think about it. And um, as I say, I've used it in various ways in, in shows where um, made a show again with Keir who I wrote Wild Time with this was the project before Wild Time where we we ended up with a big kind of 15 minute dance guitar finale and I was trying to do a, a dance that you could never do in a competition like for me the the, com the com competition sort of world is the one I'm trying to kind of punk and queer and subvert gotcha. so there was a lot of repetition there was a lot of messy yeah so so that form is is incredibly interesting because it's very um as soon as you put that instrument on stage, people are interested because they oh, yeah. don't—they don't know what you're gonna do and what what politics you're gonna yeah. embody as you do them. And they right. um, I, I really enjoy keeping audiences on the hook in that way. Well, and you were able to to merge that with your writing. Uh, did that did that just naturally occur in the process of writing the story, or was that something you planned from the beginning of Wild Time? Well, there's no there's no pole dance in Wild Time, but there is certainly a kind of uh, hopefully there's a sort of energy that is. Um, I, I get, it's a bit of a nice dream, so it's it's all about sex. Yeah, yeah, it, it really yeah. is. And and interestingly, this is the play that's overwhelmingly put on for for school children. It's a kind of whimsical, beautiful, cute text, and it is, and it can be, but also we need to think about the responsibility of staging that kind of text when. It's, it's all, all about sex isn't the problem, but the fact that the, the, the types of sexual dynamics and the power dynamics that it presents mm. can be incredibly uh, oppressive and, 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 and patriarchal and quite, mm. if we don't think about them, we go, oh, I'm so I'm worried about the, the sex element. It's like, we'll worry about the fact it's not consensual rather than the fact that it's sort of there at all. Right. So I think in making Wild Time, although we wanted it to be funny and we wanted it to be energetic and, and sexy and a really fun kind of rambunctious uh, thing to, to read, that's founded on a lot of thinking we did quite carefully about the, the, the politics of what we're representing and how we're putting that story together. Mm. Gosh, this is so much fun. <laughs> this is wildly interesting to me because this precedes the the Belladonna invitation by how long? Like how what, how much time was there between those two books? Um, Wild Time came out two in years? the summer of Wild Time came out in the summer of 2020. Okay. Um, and I think I was already thinking about Belladonna by then, um, and I began writing Belladonna invitation 
probably writing the first draft it was probably about the end of 2020 i think or okay. 2021 so it was either either that year or the year after, i forget but it was sort of it was definitely on my mind for a while um i, I personally um tend to think about a project for quite a long time before I do any writing. Like I know, I know a lot of writers who will kind of discover a lot about the text in a first draft. I have complete respect for that. But mm -hmm. what seems to work for me is I'm often not writing for quite a long time. And then eventually I will, and the first draft may come into existence relatively quickly. Mm. But so it was, it was probably a few years before I wrote the first draft I was thinking about it, because that's just the speed with which I tend to tend to work on a project like that. Sure, sure. So. I guess the one of the one of the reasons my my I'm asking that question is because I feel like in some ways uh, one story can influence the other, even if they're not related, if they're not in a series, you know. Mm. And your experience with your preceding story can sometimes shape the the, the successor story a bit, mm. um, or at least leave a taste in your mouth, right? With the experience of doing the first one, and then it, it informs in yeah. some way, even subconsciously, how we approach the next project. Mm -hmm. I I think we experience that first and foremost as readers who aren't writing. When we're in the reading stage and haven't moved toward writing yet, we read something from somebody and then we're like, ah, oh, man, this was great. Can't wait to read their next story. And we mm -hmm. kind of walk across the street with this expectation in our minds um, that there's a certain experience we're gonna have with that writer again. And I feel like as a writer, sometimes I carry that same, I don't want to call it baggage. I, I've carried that same kind of experience from one writing project to the next, mm -hmm. uh, even when they're not related uh, by storyline. So uh, that's that's why I kind of cue in on that question between the time difference between these yeah. two. Did you feel like there was any of that moving from moving from Wild Things to the, the or Wild Times, sorry, to, um, to the Belladonna invitation? It's really interesting that you, yeah, like I hadn't really considered a lot of those through lines until you sort of pulled them out. Um, I definitely, while time was uh, sort of late stages and sort of done definitely long before I was thinking about, thinking about Belladonna, but um, I'm sure those same, the type of thinking that I was doing, I suppose, mm -hmm. uh, but I also wanted it to feel like quite a different book like I'm, I'm sure it feels like the same writer has been involved in both but in in a, the, the tonally and in terms of sort of genre wise i was trying to create something a, a little bit different hmm. um and and sort of the more gothic lush tone of things that i had i'd written other things of that kind of tone before and hmm. it just so happened that the idea that i was kind of working with was was more along those lines um so maybe it was about something that would feel quite different either to experience or hmm. To, to build in a in a sort of different way, and also with with Bell's on invitation, we're sort of with the same characters. We're in quite a close psychological space, mm. whereas Wild Times got quite a massive cast, and we go right. quite wildly across from the sort of play that the mechanicals are doing. Which I'm not going to tell you because that's a spoiler, and uh, you you will love to discover it. I promise. This is in Wild Time. Putting on, yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, kind of parody of of that, and then there's the space stuff and there's the fairy knockabout fairy stuff and so it's just there's a lot of different tones and different characters are in and then belladonna's quite it's a bit of a more paranoid world it's a mm. bit of a more bit, bit of a closer perspective so i think mm. i wanted to yeah i enjoyed doing something that felt that felt a little different 
but yeah, you carry things across, of course. Yeah, I hadn't thought, hadn't considered that. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm in the midst of writing a series, so it's a lot of that has to be intentional in that situation. But I also have uh, this weird thing where I have to work on two completely different types of projects at the same time in order for oh, my yeah. brain to feel balanced. You know, I'm like that's not weird to me at all. Like right, it's kind of like sitting down for a big dinner and you're like, all right, I also need dessert. <laughs> you know, I can't, can't just be right here um uh so so yeah that 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 kind of always is, is something i have to be intentional about especially since you were you were talking a bit about plotting your story um and taking the time to plot i do the same thing before i start writing word one i have to feel very confident in that i'm gonna run like a maniac down the right path for at least a little bit mm -hmm. um, because once i start writing i'm just rolling so um to me the 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 I guess the magic is in like spending enough time uh, doing just enough plotting uh, to make me feel confident enough about running with my eyes partially closed down this path and letting the story tell me what it's going to be and what it's going to do and all those things and the characters become who they are. Uh, and that doesn't have to be finely tuned before I get started, but I at least have to know in what direction I'm running, right? So yeah. I'm with you. I'll, I'll take a couple of weeks or months to plot out even the first act of the next piece if I feel like that's going to get me to that position of comfort. But when you're doing the plotting, you're it, you're pulling from all those areas of your experience and your thinking and all that, um, even before you sit down to write. And so that's that's kind of where I have to kind of be conscious about that as a as a writer. So I appreciate you sharing in that ex, in that experience as well a bit. Um, okay, so like okay, so so now I've got I have to go get Wild Time now. I didn't even know that book existed before we met this morning, and now I have to go get it. So this is like a good pause in this show for just a moment to tell everyone go, like me go out and get Wild Time, mm -hmm. so that we, together we can in, in, enjoy these mechanics that Rose is sharing with us right now. Um, okay, so the Bell Dawn Invitation was my introduction mm. to you. And that was sent to me um, by title and uh, by by Antonia. And she said, hey, you should really check this out. Because I was telling her about how much I love good good Gothic stories. And she's like, oh, you have to check out this book from Rose. It's like, okay, great. And then I open it up and I'm like, ooh, this is, this is real Gothic. Like there's just no mistaking it. Like when you get into this story, it is every bit. Like if you're looking for a good Gothic read, this is in. I mean... <laughs> it's all there. So I was unprepared for where it was actually going. And I don't <laughs> want to do this. I don't want to let out too many spoilers, but <laughs> there's definitely a separation of class in this story. And our story starts out with F and she is working her way toward this mysterious woman. And she does end up in contact with this woman and this woman is part of something much, much bigger than even F can predict at that point. Mm. Right? So am I am I am I on the right path? It sounds okay. great to me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you un you kind of unfold this story, at least in my my experience with, with what I've read so far. And I haven't finished the book yet. So I I I know I know where it goes because I've listened to your podcasts and I'm not I don't I don't want to tell people too much, but this does this does take a dark turn uh, when you start talking about these little groups of people that get together because they have all these means, right? They're the, kind of the upper levels of society, and they can afford experiences, and they are probably seeking experiences that most of us 
wouldn't initially dream of because we don't have access to those types of resources and people. And that I think is kind of where the suspense in this story is mm. embedded is, oh, I'm not even familiar with this area of thinking, let alone this experience that these people are having. So can you unpack a little bit what inspired you to talk about these poison salons? <laughs> I was like, yes. I was so happy when I saw that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, have I just lost all of my sound? No, I don't no think so. you're back. You're back. Yeah. Um, the thing that inspired me to write the actual novel where I thought this is something that is novel sized and I can do this was the, the core relationship you've described between mm. F, the sort of aspirant devotee and and the, the woman in the world that she kind of gets entry to and seeing it through her kind of eyes and it being, as you say, um, this world that makes a makes a feature of the fact it is a bit hidden there are secrets there are rumors and navigating that is sort of part of the frisson and the thrill as well as the mm. the meat of it um so i think i think that was sort of what inspired me to, to to think this this could be a book i think this could be something i could go through with a reader um the the world itself the conceit and the the poison salons and the belladonna is what she's called who sort of runs these that came out of a, a, a sort of goth conceit which was um when I first started talking about the Belladon invitation sort of to myself and to sort of try to describe it to people, I would call it like a goth Moulin Rouge, mm. except of course, Moulin Rouge is a goth Moulin Rouge. Like that's a redundant <laughs> description. I mean, non-goths non can enjoy Moulin Rouge, but it's for us. It's for the goths. Like we, you know, um, so that redundant uh, tautological description aside, I think that kind of is a helpful way of sort of glossing the, the sort of setting that we're in, which is this, mm world of the demi just i've just made it a little bit darker and a bit more shadowy mm. um so there's a artist i can never remember the name but there was an artist in sort of fin de Cicle paris who used to walk around with a lobster on a leash mm. and this was his thing you know and he would say i love it because they're, they're brilliant they, they know the secrets of the sea and they don't bark so the perfect pet <laughs> I can remember True. that. I can't remember his name, but I remember he used to say that. So I have a moment where someone passes by with a, a scorpion on, on a leash in, in this version. So that's mm. a small difference, but sort of that maybe explains the, the, the version, the version that we're in. Little twist. The little like, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's sort of building on the, the, the sort of history and the, uh, the story of the Lady of the Camellias, which is where Moulin Rouge gets its plot from. And it's kind of taking that sort of skeleton. Um, but really what interested me was not that plot per se, but the experience of it through the central woman and her devoted friend and that they go through that, they go through that together. So there are things like desire and jealousy and money and those things are sort of themes in the book. But really at the center of it is this sort of ambition and desire, I think. Mm -hmm. And the characters maybe not even quite knowing which of those they're feeling at any one time. Right. Well, I, yeah. Yeah. And a, a, I mean, it's so different with F to me than it is for Belladonna because I think with F, F's position in society and her age, ambition is a bit of, a, I guess, more of a blind, uh, a, a blind force for her uh, than it maybe it is for someone who's been 
around a little bit more and has already achieved certain things that ambition would drive you to. And I think that's where the Belladonna is at, right? She's already achieved a lot of these successes, but she mm -hmm. just, does she really, can she ever be really satisfied? You know, mm. um, with F, she's still trying to get to something. Um, do you feel like she's kind of blind running, you know, down this path? Because um, I felt her youth through right through her ambition. Mm. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. There's definitely a question in the book of wanting something and how what do you do what will you do to get what you want which i think is mm -hmm. what we ended up with it saying on the back like how much will you let yourself be changed in the process of trying to get what you want and the character the central characters see other people also dealing with that because they're in the world that everybody else wants to get access to so in a way we're inside that kind of exclusive uh world but there's also this distance and this unknowability mm -hmm. as well and so yeah i think that question of what what do you know how much do you know about what you're letting yourself in for like what are you being allowed to know <laughs> which again was right. something as, as as the writer i was able to have a lot of fun controlling that as right. well yeah <laughs> well I, I love that and i'm probably very aware of it right now because i'm writing a character who's in nowhere near the same situation or circumstances but is at a stage in life where she's trying to take on too much and it's just her blind, youthful ambition. She's just got a fire, you know, mm. and she just can't reach uh, where she's trying to go. But once she gets all the responsibility and all the things, she becomes burdened by the by the weight of all of it, even though it's mm. not exactly what she looked for. And I think that, you know, each of your characters, uh, when they do eventually get uh, somewhat what they're looking for, they're burdened by what they experience. Mm. Um, and I think that's just part of taking on those things in life. And I just find that dynamic so interesting when I read other people's depictions of, of, of that in their, in their work. It's just, it's such mm. a human experience. It's something we all kind of go through. We just don't really put a whole lot of weight on it. I don't think <laughs> until we get older and we go, I kind of could have done that a little bit better. Um, so, and I'm raising teenagers, so it's probably just that I'm hypersensitive to this right now. <laughs> so, okay. So you've got it. You have to talk about the poison salt. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm, I'm probably showing my ignorance here, but I was unaware of the existence of these things. I made them up. Okay, great. Then I don't feel so, quite so bad. What an awesome <laughs> concept. So you made these up. What inspired and I guess, first of all, you should probably explain what they are so that people who haven't read the story yet can go, oh, that's really um, interesting. The, the Belladonna is a uh, socialite, demi-mondane, as it were, um, uh, sort of a, 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 an infinity of Paris, and she runs and operates um, something. She runs a salon, and, and it was quite common for uh, salons and, and salons run, run by women to happen at, at, at this time and in this era where many people would gather in conversation. And um, Belladonna herself, the character in the novel, she wears blackberries in her mm -hmm. hair and spiky leaves and black dresses always. And she runs uh, an elite sort of salon within the salon for people who I suppose pay particularly uh, obscene amount of money i would imagine um mm -hmm. to to attend and they eat um a single sort of belladonna berry which is a, a 
a poisonous berry to sort of enjoy that frisson of, of, of death and danger, I suppose. And so that's kind of her, the secret centerpiece of what she does, um, which it's, which people sometimes know about, sometimes don't know about. Certainly she's known to be the kind of socialite and a lot of her work is, as it was at the time, the kind of full-time work of being that kind of person is responding to invitations and working out the, you know, the, all the admin you need to do to do the creative thing. I wonder why that was on my mind, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so that's sort of her day-to-day -day existence. And then there's this additional thing, which is, uh, you know, very romantic and poetic and dangerous and and profound for the people who attend, but for the people who run it is that that's their job. That's what they do. I love it. I love it. That was uh, such a fun moment for me to discover <laughs> that element of the book. I'm like, oh, this is good. <laughs> you know, it's it's this weird thing where you say, well, if I really had just just if money wasn't an option, um, would I choose? to get that close to death, to get my thrills, would I have to? Mm -hmm. um, and those are two different questions, right? So like, if I, if I, if I have to, that's way different than I'm just doing it because it sounds fun and I can. It's, you know, I, I, there's this fear, I guess, I'm never going to realize this fear so I can talk about it, <laughs> I suppose, in, in completely like, I'm never going to be so wildly rich that that becomes the thing that I have to seek to uh, find this edge. But isn't it funny that we can find that edge right now without any resources? Yet as soon as we're put in a position where it becomes a socially like kind of taboo, elevated thing, it takes mm. on a different feel and a look. Mm. I mean, Russian roulette's been around forever, right? Like. Mm can't say forever, but some form of it's been around forever, but there's something different about unobtainium, right? Like this thing that we have, it's a status signal or a symbol, sorry. Um, and to, to, to maybe have experienced just that particular way in that particular circumstance under those conditions, that's like the kind of put the, put the, put the bow on it and pull it nice and taut. That's kind of what the belladonna has kind of created in your story is this unique, like only a few select people can experience that in this way. And I love that because I felt like that really just added this whole, like, it's kind of like the icing on the cake for me, but I'm mm. weird. So. <laughs> so. Well, that's wonderful. I, I love that that might be a response of thinking, would I, would I attend one? And if I attend one, would I eat one? That's a really interesting right. response. Yeah. That's crazy. So, so you, so you published, uh, you published with Ghost, or Ghost Orchid Press, um, and you, you published this this year, right? This was what July. Yes. Oh, so it's a it's a brand new. It is. I love it. it. Is. Um, my my I guess my my super high level recommendation to people is if you're looking for a if you like to chew on your stories and enjoy the flavor and you really like creative writing and it's literally being taken somewhere completely different, um, then I think the Belladonna invitation is great because it automatically transports you to an entirely different state of everything. I mean, the way it's written, the prose, the language, the feel, the people, the places, everything, the experiences are all so unique to what we have in modern society. So I think it's a great escape book. That's my 30,000 foot view. 
<laughs> Did you write it like that? Was it an escape for you? Hmm. I'm not sure. I mean, it was the first draft usually is you're sort of in, in the world the most when you're doing that. And I think it was mm -hmm. certainly a intense place to go. But mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I was escaping. It was, it was sort of the work. It was the job I had to do. Yeah, had to write yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> Deadlines and all that. <laughs> Antonio, if you're listening to this and you're laughing, <laughs> then we're laughing with you. <laughs> It is. That's what happens, right? It's like I do have to get this thing to my editor by a certain date. So. <laughs> but you are, you're right. You're face down grinding, you know, creating your story. Um, I love but that. I think that I think that aura of it being a bit of a strong pull into a totally different mm -hmm. sort of portalness of it. Like that, that was my intention in writing. It was to create this world that's quite, that's, that's a, a pleasure to move through. Mm -hmm. because it feels I wanted it to feel quite distinctive and so the writing style and the language is intended to kind of create that same yeah. feeling of opulence or danger or what's what's happening where are we now what is this am I okay about this okay I am yeah and that I, I wanted to kind of invite the reader to have that kind of pleasure in, in reading the books well it has those layers <laughs> it has all of that like I feel like um you know this is like eating a, a really tasty dessert it's like you have all of these different layers of experience in the book not only from the the digestion of the prose because i think reading your writing was part of the experience um that stood out to me it wasn't just like reading what i mean there's there's every writer's got their own voice um but yours was very creative and it was very flavorful and it was wrapped in all kinds of velvety chocolatey stuff <laughs> so i enjoyed it very much um so if you're if you're a fan of of, of gothic lit you've got a you've got a great book sitting right here in front of you to to dive into um now why this genre why why run down these roads right like of all the mm -hmm. places you can write about and all the things you can write about what was it about this story or these characters that kind of said it's it's our time you have to do this now like what was that yeah, I, I think, what a great question. I, I think I always knew I wanted to sort of do the kind of Lady of the Camellias what goth it up a bit, but I couldn't work out why. That didn't feel like enough of a reason. Mm. And as I say, having having F, having the apprentice, having the kind of power struggle that thinks it's a love triangle plot, suddenly it then felt like this this can now exist. Like, I think this should be something that, that is full mm. in terms of sort of the genre like i think i have always from being a teenage goth i think i do always have that slight i can i can go that way like i don't, I don't always go that way like not all of my fiction would be so but i have done decadenty dark things and this is certainly me doing that with as much um as i have <laughs> until now right. um so certainly that's always been a, a flavor and a tone that I have admired and enjoyed. Um, although actually in, we're talking about sort of historical and, and gothic and the lusciousness of this, but actually in terms of creating the, the sort of plot and the sort of suspense wise, I was quite interested in, I was reading a lot of sort of noir things like contemporary and classic, more like that sort of noir thriller genre in order mm. to try to get that cat and mouse feel between mm. Characters like I, I ultimately wanted it to feel quite modern, 
you know, and in mm-hmm. terms of what will we do to get what we want, that feels like a modern question. So I, I, I wanted, I think this is my roundabout way of answering your question. So I finally am getting to the answer, which is I, I think I think it felt like quite a modern story that mm-hmm. I was able to find within that kind of historical goth chocolate cake conceit. I found, oh, this this feels quite modern. This feels quite interesting. Yeah, the themes definitely resonate, right? It's like modern themes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, th- there's no detachment from that. And I I've, I think that's actually what kind of lends to, uh, one of the elements that lends to the strength of the story itself is you do feel like you can immediately identify with this. Although in its true, in its true build, it's somewhere else, some other time. And it's great because of that. But like you said, you, you have all of that modern, um, theme to relate to, um, mm-hmm. which keeps you anchored, uh, I think, in the story in a way that it, it probably wouldn't if you didn't have such timeless themes in there. Very cool. Um, okay, so I've <laughs> I've got to ask you a question that I hope you'll I hope you'll answer, not la- just laugh at me. Okay. But when you wrote F in the beginning, like very very beginning, like the first time you thought, what am I going to name this character? Did you? Did you intentionally choose to use a single, I guess you would get, I mean, it's going to be uh, an initial of some sort. Um, but did you, did you plan that from the very beginning? Or was that something that you came to through, through the writing? Were you like, no, no, this is part of the deal right up front. I've got to have this kind of, because it did seem kind of out, out of reach, like I felt like I couldn't really know exactly who she is because we're conditioned to know people by name. Mm-hmm. And and the moment you introduced her as F period, I was like, ooh, there's some mystery there. Yes. <laughs> um, I I did want her to be kind of nameless. Belladonna gives her the nickname Flora and occasionally she calls us her Polydiflora when she's very angry, um, which is a paler nightshade plant. Um, and in a way, I wanted her to be sort of nameless, but she gets that name and that's the name that she grows into using. And she she kind of occasionally is referred to in the in the narrative as well as as a longer pro- name. That's the one that she's sort of been given and is growing into. Um, so that was sort of initially the design for that character and how we relate with her dynamically. And I forget whether F dot uh, was hot on the tails of that or whether it was part of it from the beginning, but certainly that she doesn't really have a name until she gets given one and then she will kind of grow to it was definitely part of the original design. Um, but I think, I think there's a question, there's a sort of question of knowing someone's real name is a bit of a thing in the book because Belladonna is that sort of societal title. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few other characters who might not necessarily, does it matter if their real name is the one they operate under? I don't know. Like that. So there's sort of, um, right. F also enters this world where, if someone introduces themselves to you and says, my name is this and I'm the manager of this and I run this, um, it's, it's all true. So there's just, there's just this element of kind of um, putting a name on, like putting a costume on, be- becoming, a, becoming a persona that's sort of part of the texture of the book. So it came from there. Well, at first I was like intrigued. I was like, ooh, what are we doing here, right? Because I didn't, because you don't know what's coming down the pipe yet. Um, and then as I read on, I was like, oh, that's a, bit of a stroke of genius there because there's this mystery about who's this person going to be and then the answer is they are who they are in the moment mm-hmm. right like whoever they're becoming is who they are and it's yeah. it's kind of all assigned to you as you go along and I was like 
Okay, this is cool. <laughs> okay. So, you know, remember when I was telling you guys, like, you know, to chew on this story and spend some time reading and flip off. This is all the stuff that comes through. Um, it, it really did. Uh, it really did kind of catch my attention. So I appreciate that. That was really cool. Um, and I know I say that a lot, but I really mean it. <laughs> I really enjoyed that about this. Um, okay. So where where does this leave you like as a writer you're like okay i mean this is a it, it's a it's a lot to produce a story like this um and there's always this post release kind of experience where you're marketing and you're and you're letting the story go out there and do its thing um and and people are discovering it um how how has it felt since the release i mean are you you know first of all i i, I always feel like if we if we write the book in in the under the right circumstances and we feel good when we release it we tend to carry that feeling on so i'm i'm going to make the assumption that you're happy with with your story and that you love it um and now you're just enjoying everyone coming and talking to you about it <laughs> right? it's, it's the, yeah we're so hot off the uh publication and the date of this recording that it does mostly feel like i'm just happy for it to be in the world kind mm -hmm. of finally and um the few Bits of comment that have come back from people who have got it and responded to it are, are wonderful to, to hear. And yeah, yeah, I think I am still in that in that stage. Yeah, isn't it wonderful? I love that little kind of in between. Um, one of my one of my uh, mentors is Honoré Quarter, and she's uh, this prolific nonfiction writer. And she and I are very close business partners, friends, mentors, the whole deal. Um, and she's she told me very early on in my uh in my little writing journey here that there's like these three phases of a book um and right now this is the honeymoon right it's like yeah. it's fresh it's fun it's everything um and and it's just a magical little place to be in so i'm enjoying it with you i mean i'm happy to talk about the book now in this time with this happening with this story in your life because it's a really kind of a unique it's the only time you're going to have this little period with the book and it's really, really, um, a special kind of moment for, for, for a writer and the readers who are discovering it for the very first time. And they're all going to hear this episode buy the book and then run out and tell all their friends. So, <laughs> right. <Fingers crossed>. Yeah. <laughs> right. Leaders, uh, or readers. Okay. So I have to, I have to, I have to touch on music before we go because it's kind of my thing. Mm -hmm. Um, did you, have certain music that inspires you while you wrote this? Did you listen to a certain style of music or are you like a no music while I write kind of person? Like where, what, what was that like for you? Well, actually the, the, the answer to that question for this particular project is quite interesting because um, I work, uh, Kia Cooper, who's come up a few times now, um, <laughs> we share, an, share a working space. And actually during the time I was composing the first draft of this, of this novel he was working on um his next uh his new album which is coming out next year which coincidentally as far as we can tell is also working with um opera in in a different form another so he's he's a composer and a musician and he works with uh with and against guitar in the way i work with and against pole um gotcha. and he's working with a, a soprano singer who was sort of sending bits of uh vocal either improv or things to prompts he would send bits of, of vocal material mm. and he's been sort of composing around that and moving it around and manipulating it and, and adding extremely 
extreme applications of technology and lots of interesting things to turn it into something that's sort of impossible to would be impossible to perform live but is a very interesting kind of version of guitar and voice playing there so actually while i was sort of writing the, the first draft of belladonna invitation he was finishing specifically a couple of tracks from that album which is this sort of experimental very modern sounding but also very classical and very beautiful soprano and guitar music mm. so there's a few tracks from that album which to me are like my private little soundtrack to sort of the sort of the novel it's sort of managed to manage to work so i'm quite lucky um if it was not that i would have yeah definitely listened to some music in my earphones but i was like actually this is really appropriate this is if i can kind of write towards this tone of this sort of odd opera that's like beautiful but doesn't quite work and is sort of being worked with and actually it's quite it's quite helpful like tone mm. there i can kind of i can use yeah. that <laughs> so. i love that what a cool coincidence <laughs> yeah we've talked about it like well how come we both did a project that was sort of opera leaning and i, I very cool. See, like that's a unique story. We don't get that one here very often. Usually it's like me and someone else trading song names. Uh, this is really cool. So so this is, um, I want to make sure I get his name right here. Keir Cooper? That's right, yes. Okay. And is the album out? No, it's out next year. Okay. Um, it's called Star Quality. And I will let you know any details as I have them, but um, awesome. I, I already know at least a few of the tracks are very exciting to me because they sound like they sound like the Belladonna reads to me. <laughs> well, now I'm now I'm going to be waiting very patiently to hear it, and I'm going to want to listen to that while I read <laughs> read the book again. So sometime next year, I'm going to have a second pass on on <laughs> the Belladonna invitation just because the album released. So that's great plan. I love it. Um, you're obviously not always going to be uh, doused with live music uh, while, you, while you're in the midst of writing your book. Um, is there a certain type of, of music that you prefer to write to, or are there are certain artists that just kind of stand out as inspirations for your work? I think, I think it can depend. Um, and sometimes I'm fine for it to be whatever's on the radio. And I, I enjoy getting rid of the agency to like choose and just go mm. play with something. Um, sometimes, especially with shorter fiction, I, I sometimes find uh, video game music is quite good. Oh, yeah. In the earphones because it's ambient and it's mm -hmm. designed to be instrumental and it's unobtrusive, but also it can be really designed to be incredibly evocative of a certain tone or a place or a genre or something. Yes. So sometimes, like, this is sort of not a very, not a very cool answer, but sometimes, especially for short fiction, I sometimes go, I think actually that, that, game music and you can get sort of hour long loops of it that people sort of make and listen to and maybe also because even though writing is like one of the top five fun things to do i'd still rather do anything else so if i can listen to something that makes me feel like i'm playing a computer game then maybe i will sort of trick myself into thinking i'm having more fun <laughs> <laughs> so, so sometimes and i'm not going to name names because that will definitely age me very specifically and precisely oh, stop. but like um it's not necessarily like this story spent on a spaceship and there's a game set on a spaceship. It can be, I don't think I've ever set anything on a spaceship actually, but it can be a lot more like esoteric and only I can really understand the link, but somehow right. that, that music is going to be appropriate and I can sort of stop listening to it. And Cause if it's a tune I'd love, I'll just start wanting to, I'll start listening to the music and I'll dance and move around and um, you know, which is great pleasure, but also sometimes you have to be doing the work. <laughs> 
you have to be disciplined. <laughs> so that, that's great. Um, I, I, I find that sometimes like a single song will just keep hitting me while I'm writing a, a certain yes. book. And I'm like, loop it again, loop yeah, it again, loop, let's go. Loop, yeah. yeah, and I'm enjoying it every time. I'm not even sick of it because I just feel like I'm transported and it's like kind of like a gateway that I have to keep passing through to, to get right where I want to be. Um, sometimes you discover that while you're writing, right? Something comes on and it's just like phew, magic. Like these two things go together like peanut butter and jelly. So we're just going to keep them, keep them, keep them going. Um, when I wrote the Bury the Child novella, the last four chapters of that book were all written to one song. And it was um, uh, Leprous is the name of the band. And this song was called The Sky is Red. And it's so eerie, dark, kind of just, it's just such a deep song. It's got this great kind of tribal energy to it. It's not slow whatsoever, but it is mm -hmm. definitely a, an adventure. So, And that, um, was, that was just looping for yeah, you. Just rock it, man. Like there's like two or three songs on that album that kind of evoke that kind of similar feel i when sometimes i'll start writing to a song because the song's inspiring me and it's making me feel like i want to write but then once i start writing the story doesn't match the song and i have to shift mm. <laughs> so so That's anyways yeah yeah so i have to be careful with listening to the radio like you were saying because sometimes it'll 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 mess with me um which is funny because I, I talk to other writers that that write to music and sometimes it's lyrics that that cause them for me it's the the like the undertonings of the song um, but I know a lot of writers who can't uh, listen to lyrics while they write. The, just words on words kind of messes them up. Interesting. Mm. Awesome. So, okay, Rose, you've got the coolest music story so far on the podcast because you literally had someone composing the music you were listening to while <laughs> you were writing the book. Super cool. <laughs> well, we can't beat that one, guys. Like, I don't know who's coming on next to show, but um, <laughs> I'm going to have to pose that to him as a challenge. Find a way to beat Rose's story about composing <laughs> music. Um, all right. Well, so you've got short story collections to check out. You have Wild Time. You have the Belladonna Invitation. Um, you've had this great uh, discussion about your art. I'm just over the moon that we were able to meet today. I'm so grateful that you were able to take the time. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with us on the way out, including anything you're reading that um, you feel like might be a good recommendation for other people. So just a little foreshadow before she answers, because I'm catching her completely flat footed. I did not tell her I was going to ask her this question. And so every time someone asks me this question and I'm not expecting it, I go blank. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, uh, what's the name of the book I've been reading for three weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's like, so, so I'm giving you a little time to think if you need it, but at my expense, I, I, I tend to to run into that when I'm asked this question. So is there anything that you're currently reading or read recently that's kind of st stuck with you a bit? Yeah. Um, well, in terms of, uh, and, and things that feel sort of genre appropriate to this, to this discussion, I did recently finish and enjoy the tiger syndrome, T-A-I-G-A, uh, -T -A -A, tiger syndrome by uh, Christina Rivera Garza, which I think it won the Shirley Jackson Award a couple mm. of years ago. And it's this sort of novella length. It's like a weird fiction, sort of David Lynch, oh. sort of twisted noir thing about a de detective sort of taking on a case against her better judgment, right? And through a sort of twisted interstellar Brothers Grimm sort of dystopian 
world. It's wonderful. It's very sparsely poetically written and, and it's an incredibly um, evocative world. Um, so that's definitely an interesting kind of sort of feminist weird fiction, uh, really interesting uh, language and I enjoyed that a lot. Um, oh, I should also give a shout out to um, E. Saxe's um, novel Unquiet, um, Unquiet, which is a sort of goth, yeah, a late Victorian gothic sort of um, fam uh, the ghosts of families and hidden histories and that's quite wonderful. I'm enjoying that a lot at the moment. Um, in incidentally, um, E. Saxe and I, we, we worked out that Unquiet and Belladonna Invitation came out on the same day. Oh. So we've been joking about sort of being book twins. Yeah. Um, but there is a sort of, if you liked that, you'll love this feel across across both. So um, oh, definitely good. I'd say Unquiet and the Tiger Syndrome. In terms of, um, not, it's only interesting, non-fiction, I've really enjoying um, Charlotte Gordon's uh, dual biography of Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley, uh, Romantic mm. Outlaws, it's called, um, which is a really wonderful kind of look at... Um, you know, Wollstonecraft died when Mary Shelley was days old, I think, weeks old. And so, but but also her life massively overshadowed Mary Shelley. And it's looking at that kind of twinned uh, influence and, and their lives. Mm. And that's incredible. Um, I also know um, Emily Ogden. She's got a new book out called Frailties about Edgar Allan Poe that I'm really looking forward to. I don't know much about it, but I know mm. I enjoy her. It's a sort of... Um, essays about his his work and his legacy and and thinking about that and so that's something that i'm aware is coming out and i look forward to look forward to jumping into and talk about taking on a project that people are going to feel a way about you know like there's some there's some opinions out there that i would always i'd be terrified to take on a piece of work like that uh knowing that there's some people out there that just eat sleep and breathe you know writers like Poe. <laughs> so it's like, wow, that's really cool. Um, good for her. That's excellent. Well, I appreciate the referrals. Uh, I haven't read any of the books you recommended. So now they're all on my TBR to go stock up as soon as we hang up. Um, and I, I just, I just wanted to take a moment here at the close of the show to thank you so much. We've been, we've been putting this episode together for a while and that is, um, it was so nice to be able to meet someone that was referred to me by someone I really look uh, up to. Antonia made the connection. I was super grateful when she did. And I'm even more happy now about that than I was beforehand. So it's been an absolute pleasure to interview you and talk about your great art. And this has just been so much fun. So please do come back anytime you want. Just send me an email and say, I'm ready to rock, dude. And it could be uh, that you've got some some other great piece of written work coming out because um, I know you have some plans for 2024, which maybe we can meet again and talk about sometime soon. Um, and we'd love to have you back. So thank you so much for sharing everything with us. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been great. So, all right, guys, well, you know the deal. Um, go check out Rose. Go check out her books. Um, go check out all of the recommendations she made. Um, come on back here, subscribe, listen to the show, do all the things. We'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks, Rose. <laughs>